This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 204, Brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jadev Janardana, CEO of Zopa. As you know, Zopa pretty much invented peer-to-peer lending, i.e. real disintermediation of the bank as middleman between saver and lender way back in 2005. Indeed, P2P was one of the major game changers in the fintech phenomenon and lending club notably listed in the States which always tended to go for easier slash cheaper institutional funding than retail in passing using this model, as did funding circle in the business lending sector in the UK. Going back to the early days of fintech and perhaps excessive optimism that P2P was going to wipe out the banks overnight, I was always concerned on a couple of bases, one of which is that we can intermediate cheaper than megabank arguments. Now, I'm sure that all the P2Ps were cheaper than the megabanks in, say, Canary Wharf, However, this neglected the fact that, just to scribble a caricature on the whiteboard, for every pound coming into a bank, the bank can create, say, another nine pounds out of thin air. Nice work if you can get it. Thus, just as a fag packet, it wasn't a question of, I thought, could P2Ps be cheaper as intermediators than banks, but could they be, for the sake of argument, ten times cheaper? The second concern that we've touched on once or twice in the podcast is that P2Ps remained pretty much atomized rather than forming an interconnected ecosystem, especially after a notorious FT Alphaville article on Turtles on Turtles, which kicked the nascent networking into touch. Why does this matter, and indeed, what on earth am I talking about? Well, again, very simplistically, on any given day, an individual bank will either have more savers or more borrowers knocking on its front door, and therefore be out of balance. It is only the fact that they have an interbank market via their treasuries that balances out all these surpluses and minuses. So, if those were some strategic concerns back in the day, a further practical one was that whilst pure P2P Zopa, shall we say, enjoyed great customer ratings, even then it was never generally the cheapest in terms of loan rates. Anyway, as you will all know, Zopa became a bank quite some time ago. So who better than JDEV, who oversaw that transformation, to give us the long, nearly 20 years, whole arc of fintech as it relates to borrowing lending? How does JDEV see the lessons of a decade or so of peer-to-peer, especially now from the perspective of understanding both sides of the equation, i.e. strengths and weaknesses of peer-to-peer and strengths and weaknesses of bank? Importantly, with those lessons in mind... What does this say about the future trajectory over, say, the next five to ten years of fintech or banking as a whole? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Jadev. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. And just to kick off the show, I'd like to uh, thank you and uh, tease you respectively. Uh, I'd like to thank you because since I last came to so Zopa, you very kindly moved extremely near to London Bridge Station, um, which made my, uh, my, my commute uh, not far. You're on the Cotton Centre, which is just south of the 
uh, River Thames, literally next to the London Bridge for people who don't know London. And then in terms of teasing you, I liked the fact that it's very much back to the future, in that I arrived here at about quarter 11, and you arrived about five minutes later, which def- definitely pleased me, because one of the problems, as I see it, of the 21st century is that everybody works far too much. But you reminded me about the old anecdote of domestic banking in Clamont Benson in the 70s, which was even before my time, where the hours were uh, 10 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Probably with a champagne uh, lunch thrown in well, in the middle. Well, I was about to say, and a crisis in domestic banking was when the sherry ran out <laughs> yes. in the morning. Yeah. So, yes, I congratulate you on setting a very good example of uh, a work-life balance and just popping in for a sort of couple of hours and, and hopefully your sherry won't run out. Brilliant. I mean, I do hope my days uh, one day turn out to be like that. But right now, it's a bit busier than it seems. Ah, well, maybe you were coming in from a meeting after all. Indeed. Yeah. In terms of your deep interest, shall we say, in lending and borrowing, you were telling me that, um, amazingly enough, this goes back to your childhood and not necessarily from the perspective of being the kind of... Uh, bizarre five-year-old that likes reading books on banking credit. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, I, um, it so happens that I accidentally landed myself in consumer lending about 20 years ago. Uh, but my experiences with credit, both positive and negative, actually go back a bit longer. Just as I was entering uh, the tumultuous teenage age, uh, in, uh, you know, out of childhood into an adolescent, uh, my father decided it's enough time for a uh, for him doing a predictable government job and wanted to be an entrepreneur. Well, let's just say things didn't quite go to plan. And uh, in India at that time, which is where I grew up, the idea of unsecured borrowing for individuals or, finan- or businesses didn't quite exist as a concept. Thus, we as a family and he personally got uh, exposed to, let's say, some of the more loan sharky elements of things. And that was a tough, tough experience as a teenage boy growing up. But also on the flip side, actually getting some credit, mostly from kind of friends and family and relatives, to be able to complete my education was incredibly enabling. Uh, it, it kind of enabled me to kind of build a career, travel the world, be in London, and so on. So I have seen actually the both sides of credit, the good it can do, and when not done properly, uh, the stress it can create uh, for people. So thus, when I kind of started my career in consumer lending, that's that's something that I keep in mind all the time in terms of what would it feel to be as a customer on the other end? Yes, that must have been a, a painful experience all round. But as you say, it does give you a very different feel from the average CEO in fintech about what it's like to be on the other side of the equation. Yes, because yeah, having yeah. seen that more from the sort of the banker's side, the perspective myself, you've got these nice slash good people who repay you on time and don't cause any fuss. And then you've got these annoying slash bad people who don't. And that's the kind of administrative perspective from managing a loan portfolio. But from the other side of the equation, you've got human beings who are going through all sorts of shit like that. And what is true is that I think, uh, at least in my experience of lending, both in the US and here, a vast majority of the people who are not able to pay back are not because they're not willing to pay back, just because they're not able to. And a lot of that time just because of circumstances outside their control. And for me, there was a kind of almost a unwelcome refresher of this back in 2009 and 2010 when I was working in the UK business for Capital One. And uh, I was responsible for what was called uh, arrears management. And part of the job, and I think I, I made sure it was all of us actually listened to a few calls uh, that people were having with our customers to really understand what the what was actually going on, going there, and that was a, I mean that's something that we continue to do even today, where as a leadership team every month we would listen to a few phone calls, and I I make sure that my operations directors pick some harder calls to listen to, where we haven't quite done what we think we should be doing. Yes, well that's a 
a brilliant story and very moving. Um, you've got, as we're about to hear, plenty of experience of financial services. And as listen, listeners will know, there's a great tendency for financial services to become about numbers. Yes. Because it is, the numbers matter. <laughs> yeah. And to become about computers yeah. um, and all this kind of stuff. And to forget that actually it's about human beings and... One of the interesting things about, well, it's not it's a big tangent, so we won't go down this hole, but one of the interesting things about debt forgiveness and all this kind of stuff about in countries and, and all this is that, and there's a lot of work being done on this, actually, in terms of the moral perspective, anthropologically, of borrower and lender. Right. I've seen very differently in different cultures. Yes. So over here, for example, a couple of hundred years ago, you could have ended up in debtor's prison, which wasn't a good place to be if you didn't repay your debts. Right, yeah. So the moral fault was seen as being on the borrower. Yeah. However, there are other countries where the moral fault is seen as the lender. And yeah. so, for example, in Islam, you have the concept of usury, as you did in the, yes. the Catholic Church for yeah. quite a long time as well. And, and there, it was seen that the, the borrower, sorry, the lender, could be morally at fault. So these things really vary sort of culturally. And I think we are getting to a, I guess, a somewhere in the middle, which is often where the right answer is, where if you look at, say, the UK and the the concept of responsible lending and the, uh, the responsibilities we as lenders have to make sure that before we make a lending decision, uh, understand whether the borrower would be in kind of financial detriment or not. And of course, that's a probabilistic-based decision, but there is that responsibility on us, matched by the fact that the borrower, uh, within reason, should do what is affordable for them to pay back. So we're finding a right balance there, hopefully. Yes, quite. Unlike, and we will not go down this rabbit hole, unlike the UK government, which uh, managed to create tens of billions of pounds of fraud, uh, which had binned, um, which was entirely foreseeable uh, beforehand. But uh, let's gloss over that one. Right. OK, so then were you like the kind of kid whose parents, shall we say, get cancer and then you go, oh, God, I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up and, and stop this kind of thing in terms of having seen the problems that yeah. financial services can cause for uh, people? Uh, or was it literally just sort of it went into the back of your mind, you half forgot about it, you got some job and another job, and another job. And then before you know, it, you ended up doing the banking thing. Yeah, so I was definitely not the uh, the kid who said I would be a doctor and save the world, or in this case, I'd be a banker and save the world. No, that was not my intention. Uh, as I said, I, I did accidentally find myself, uh, after being training myself as an engineer, actually working for a telco for a very short while, then going into business school and then getting hired by Capital One in their car business. This was 2002, literally 20 years ago. And uh, that's when I found myself back in, in consumer lending, but I just felt that the experiences I had was more helpful in, uh, in, in making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as actually giving a motivation for me to be in this job. I joined Zopa in October 2014. I initially joined as Chief Operating Officer before becoming CEO about a year later. So you've now been CEO for about seven years. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, all of that leads very nicely into this mega arc of, let's call it 20 years because it's much simpler, uh, even if arithmetically it's 17, not 20. Uh, this 20-year arc of fintech, Zopa's seminal part of forming what became known as fintech quite a few years after Zopra had started, uh, along with perhaps a few FX players, all of that up to where you are now. So let's just go back 20 years. In 2002, as you say, you joined Capital One. When do you think you personally became aware of peer-to-peer -peer or fintech or funny stuff like that? I mean, I, I certainly wasn't aware in 2005, not in a million years, would yeah. I have known who Zopra was or what fintech was. And the, the word fintech... Was it, didn't it exist for many years anyway? I would say, you know, I first became aware of peer-to-peer -peer lending probably in 2007 or 2008. And I think this was when Lending Club had just, just uh, been born and so on. So that was the first time I heard about it. 
The idea of using kind of data for making better decisions uh, was something that was actually in the DNA of Capital One. So that was something that we did. So that's one part of fintech. The idea of actually being really good at technology uh, was something that I would say the financial services sector as a whole only started thinking about more seriously maybe in kind of 2011, 2012, something like that. It was clearly 2008, uh, the financial services had, from 2008 to 10 probably, they had, I guess, bigger fish to fry, if you will. And then when you heard about P2P and sort of, you know, read an article on the internet or spoke to somebody who was in it or something and started to scratch your head. What were your reactions? I mean, I've mentioned, you know, a couple of my big picture ones up front, which is, yes, I was sure that, you know, Zopa rates at a funding circle could intermediate cheaper than HSBC or or, or Citigroup because their cost base could be much lower. And I was sure that maybe they could be better at tech because they haven't got all the legacy stuff. But I was unsure about this sort of money multiplier. I was unsure about the simplistic thing that if we're cheaper, we're going to wipe the banks out of existence kind of argument. And I I caricature it just to to, to take it simple here uh, firstly. And then the second thing about um, P2P always lacked an interbank market. Um, And if you destroy the interbank market, then banks would sort of struggle to make make ends meet as it were. So those, those are my big, big picture reservations at first about in terms of it, it's going to wipe the banks out. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing. Um, but those were the things that peer-to-peer had, had to prove. And as we've seen, some have stayed in it, some have, have sold, uh, some have listed, and, and some have got banking licenses now. So they've gone in a, in a variety of directions. What was your initial feel about this, the P2P argument, when someone put it to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you big banks like Capital One, you know, yeah. you're big and expensive and your computers were built the year before last and ours were built last year and yeah. mumble, 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 and so we're going to wipe you out of existence. I'm, I'm, of course, caricaturing, but there's a drift of that. I never bought into that, right? Not then, not when I actually joined Zopa back in 2014. And in fact, funny anecdote, we have this T-shirt, which we think at some point in time will become a collector's piece, which says, what is a Zopian? A Zopian is what we call our employees. And one of the lines is, not a banker. Uh, and I remember seeing that T-shirt and saying, ah, I'm not quite sure of that then. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> exactly. This was back in 2014. So I never thought, I never bought into that argument. And if you actually take it and look at it, I think there were a few different aspects of the peer-to-peer business which were actually helpful. Some of them had actually nothing to do with peer-to-peer, to be honest, the funding model, right? Some of them had. So if you think about Zopa and what was its value proposition, the value proposition was one, you know, if you're an investor or lender, then you can get a, actually a much better return for us taking a slightly higher risk. And that was something that, as Zopa, at least at Zopa, we, we consistently delivered. So we, we delivered you know, average returns of 4 to 5%, way above inflation at those days, uh, consistently, and a very small minority of our customers actually lost any money, and they did so typically because they didn't stick along with the product for long enough, right? So there was a clear value proposition there. There was also a value proposition for the borrower that we could, we could we'll provide more transparent products, we'd use technology to actually turn that around very quickly for them. And the fact that we were nimble, agile, meant that we could create technology that really met today's needs. Now, neither of these two are technically necessarily for there for peer-to-peer, but that those were good value propositions, right? And particularly from the borrower's standpoint, that value proposition continues to be the core for Zopa going forward. And one of the things about Zopa, I mean, one of the things I haven't touched on, we can't touch the entire sector, but one of the things about Zopa that I always found remarkable, and I never really had a good feel for, which is that, again, going back to 20 years ago, when you and I would wear banking, traditional banking hats and fintech didn't exist, one would generally regard unsecured consumer lending as a bit risky. Right. Because it's unsecured and it's consumer as opposed to yeah. I lend some metal bashing firm and yeah. there's some huge steel press and I'm just going to take it if they stop yeah. repaying. Yeah. Yeah. But Zopa always seemed, and again, I, I mean, okay, I, I can probably go back and listen to one of my podcasts and listen to what Jar said about yeah. it and all that. 
but it, it's, it's still just a gut feel. I'm still kind of, I'll put it this way. If you'd asked me 15 years ago, what would I guess would be the default rate? I would have guessed far higher. Yeah, so again, this was a choice we made. And I think it's one of the misnomers that small business lending or business lending is less risky than, in fact, in most cycles, small business tends to be far more volatile. I was talking about big industrial lending. Big industrial lending is different, but even there, you can easily get caught in what is called concentration risk. You might end up, because there are only a few of these players, you have to lend a lot to them, and one of them goes bust, you have a huge risk. We've always maintained default rates of 3% or, uh, or thereabouts in our, in our lending, which as compared to main, any other peer-to-peer lender is one of the smallest followers. And it's really about you know, offering a great product that allows the right borrowers to come to you and so that you can you can select from a great pool right so that's that's what enabled that but coming back to your old question on the you know why didn't peer to peer then wipe out the banks i think there were some constraints in the model a it only worked for kind of installment loans that are kind of short duration which meant that it was kind of one part of the market but our customers borrowing needs are more more flexible than that and, and wider than that the second thing was margins right so if somebody else is taking the risk, in which case, in this case, your kind of lenders, then they will, they want to be rewarded for that margin, and that was you know that's the best way to make money in lending is to actually you know understand the risk and take some of it yourself. At Zopa, as a peer-to-peer business, we were doing a lot of work in making sure we understood the you risk and managed it well. You were basically a broker between buyer and seller of credit. Exactly right. So, but we were doing all the work yes. of actually understanding, predicting, and managing that risk. And taking the reputational risk. So you're you're a broker. How can I put this? It's a silly example, but most of my examples always are. Let's say you're a supermarket and you're selling loads of fish. Yeah. And somebody supplies you with a fish and somebody buys it. Yeah. But you're not eating your own fish, so you're not taking the risk of getting ill. Yeah, yeah. And then you're buying all these fish and you're spending lots of time, you know, getting the right ones, and then suddenly a whole bunch of ten percent of your customers are knocking on the front door saying, This fish has made us ill for a month. Yeah, yeah. So you're not actually taking taking the risk, but you're doing all the work in checking. But also you've got all the downside if it goes wrong at that end. Correct. So reputational downside for sure. So there was just not enough margin in the in the business for a standalone thing. I think it as a as a part of a overall funding model. I would say continued to make sense, but as a standalone, there was not enough money in it. But one of the advantages was that you could actually grow the business to a scale without ha- having to put a lot of capital into it. Right? And that's why I think a lot of the businesses that started as peer-to-peer became successful was the fact that you could, because there were people who wanted to lend, you didn't have to raise tons of capital, which a bank needs to have if you wanted to do its own lending, to actually, you know, actually grow to a scale. But once people reach a certain scale, then raising capital becomes easier and the banking model becomes more So it bootstraps much easier. As a consultancy model or as a brokerage model, Correct. you can bootstrap. And also, yeah. um, maybe we, we touch on this or not, but if anybody wants out there wants to go and set up a bank tomorrow, yeah, cool, go and do it. But it may take you a little while to get all the regulatory approvals and people on your board and all that It took us stuff. four years. Well, there we go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. QED. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. So... So I think it's a good way to start up, but I do feel at some point in time, most business, I mean, I, we felt that back in 2016, which is where we went down that road. Most businesses would say, we need more diversity here. And as that word has been hijacked by the uh, wokists these days, diversity of product, diversity of income streams? Diversity, all of it. So diversity of funding, right? Diversity of uh, income streams, so interest and fees, and diversity of product, you know thing with installment loans is that you have to keep doing them uh, because they get a pay down. So how can you do something like credit cards, for example, which is a far more lifelong product. And that's once you originate the customer, you can keep them and there's more stickiness to it. So all of those things matter.
Yes, and you make me think of going back about a decade or so, Market Invoice, who were always very highly respected in the industry, and they did a really good business. But I think they didn't grow anywhere near as fast as I might have thought they would have grown, say, 10 years ago. Largely because they were doing such short period stuff that even though they had great records and great performances and all this kind of stuff, I mean, even though, I don't know, back in the top of my head, 2015, they were turning away capital and knocking on their door because all the loans were sort of, all the, all the invoices were repaying in 30, 60 days yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. So yeah. they had to keep it going so fast, they were running to stand still. And if we go to another extreme of, say, the brokerage using the word loosely model, say Cedars in, in equity crowdfunding, yeah. um, again, going back to the early days of the podcast, it was very evident in the mid-10s or whatever they're called, that some of these businesses that I go and see were getting bigger and better offices very fast and some weren't. So I go and see Cedars a couple of times, you know, by two or three years apart, and they been a slightly larger office, but I come and see Zopra and suddenly the office was much greater or rate setter. Yeah. And I think that was because the equity crowdfunding model is, brokerage is one, but maybe a hunter-gatherer model is a different, whereas the peer-to-peers were kind of farmers. Yeah, yeah. So when you've got sort of assets under management, not the right phrase, but never mind, it is like having more and more land. Correct. And the land has got a certain yield. Yes. And so, you know, you, after a while, you've got 400 acres. Yes. And it's, you know, you're getting so many crops per acre, yeah, yeah. as opposed to uh, an equity crowdfunder. Yeah. Hey, we've shot this deer. Right. Yeah. Anybody want to buy a deer? Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's gone. Okay. We'll go and find something else and yes. shoot it. Yes. Yes. So I think there is some farming, if you want, in the peer-to-peer business, but I would say a lot more than crowdfunding, but not enough as there is in banking. So in terms of then the, the phase change that you, you guys went through yeah. at Zopa, um, obviously there was a lot of publicity and articles around the time about all oh, Zopa's changing to the bank because this is yeah. a, a huge thing and given the landmark position of Zopa I mean I have to say that my sort of emotional reaction was sort of one of sadness really because yeah. notwithstanding the fact that I'd come from a sort of very solid banking background and gone hey look I want all you guys to do really well because I'll have someone to talk to in my podcast if you, all, if you all go bust I'll have to sort of get a proper job again or something like that but actually I, wanted, I really wanted all these guys to succeed and, and some of them have and some of them are still going but yeah so I think it was a bit sort of sad I thought that oh oh Zopa's sort of uh, moving on maybe it's part of evolution it's part of life you know it's like uh, you, you go through your teenagers you're talking about and, and things change all the time so looking back on that phase change at the time how do you think it was sort of seen and received and what do you think people got right or didn't get right in terms of perceiving Zopa that now in 2022 you go, well, look, look it's not just me coming up with some hypotheses that, yeah. hey, 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 guys, look, honestly, as you will have to have done to your board, no doubt, hey, look, honestly, I think this is a really good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And they're listening to you and obviously in the end they, they did listen to you and, and, and you've executed on it really well, but there was no proof. It was your view yeah, yeah. and you've implemented it and, and it's worked. You can explain what that means work later. Seven years on, you talk to the board, none of them need persuading that yeah. this, is, this is a good thing. Yeah. So how do you look back on that period yourself? So I mean for us it's a, it was a period of excitement. There was a period of sadness more recently when we decided to actually exit peer-to-peer and we can come back to that later. But for us actually going into banking was, uh, was a period of excitement because fundamentally when we looked at our business we said you know we really f- have figured out how to attract great customers figure out whom to lend to and really service them well. But being in peer-to-peer, we are kind of constraining ourselves to a narrow installment loan business. And by getting into banking, uh, we can actually widen that product offering, introduce credit cards, introduce car finance, offer savings to our investors, uh, and offer much better of, uh, kind of returns on their savings. Is this kind of one of the things we haven't touched on? Is this, sorry, don't interrupt. But it, yeah. is this a kind of a, a marketing thing, which is the cost of customer acquisition is so high 
that if you only have, if, if you spend ages chasing a customer and you sell them one thing once, yeah. as opposed to you've got a customer and, and you, you've sold them a blue pen and then later you sell them a green pen and then you sell them a pad of paper yeah. and then you sell them a watch and you know and they trust you and therefore it's easier to sell the next marginal so products. We're very disciplined with our cost to acquisition. So you know all our products have typically have had single digit month paybacks. So that it's not quite that. It's more that. There are all these needs, so there is there's an opportunity that I have, I have the customer already and I could offer them something else. That's one part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is that sometimes a customer out there is looking for a loan. Sometimes they're looking for, not for a loan, but a, but a credit card, right? Uh, and if and if they're looking, uh, and they're looking in similar places and I'm there, but I cannot give that to them, then it seems like a wasted opportunity. So that is what, what I think. So, you know, by doing that, you effectively... It's less about be getting more of our customers, which also is, I think, part of the equation. But the bigger equation is that you actually triple your target addressable market. The installment loans business, which is what peer-to-peer was all about, is about 50 billion. By installment loans, for listeners who aren't familiar with that phrase, it means you know you, you borrow 5,000, you pay 500 over a period of time every month back, and thus you replay your loan. Right? So that's simple. Special. The things that we were interested in were specifically car finance, which there were some regulatory issues with doing that with a peer-to-peer structure and credit cards, and we thought all of that can be done better with a bank license, and that meant that we could be going after a 150, 160 billion market instead of 50 billion market. But the other things that we talked about was also important, right, which was kind of diversity of income and making sure that you're moving more to where become a farmer. So once I give a loan as a, lo- as a bank, I'm making interest revenue over the life of that uh, loan rather than just a big, big uh, kind of upfront fee and a smaller servicing fee later. So those were the things. So for us, it was a period of excitement. It did require us a reasonable amount of time to explain because we were actually, if not the first, one of the first to go down this path. I remember having conversations with some of my U.S. counterparts where they said, why are you doing this? And I said, well, we think this is the right answer. And now all of them have done it. SoFi has done it. Lending Club has done it. Right? So we felt this was the, the, the right place to go. But it did require us some time to kind of explain why. And to say from the position where you're, you've got your sort of thousand-page PowerPoint, which you're going through with the board, yeah. and you're crossing your fingers behind your back and say, honest, I think this is the right thing to do. And they go, oh, fair enough, let's do it then. What has surprised you about the last seven years? Presumably, you didn't imagine it take four years to get authorised or however long it took. Correct. So it did, it did take us longer to get a bank licence than we, what we had expected. Not by a lot. We thought we'd be, we'd be getting it done in about two and a half years. It took us four years, so it was a bit longer. But on the flip side, as compared to the plans that we had when we launched our bank, We've been surprised by the customer uptake. Uh, we've been surprised by the usage of our products, uh, and, we, and the products that we put out there have had more success than I had imagined, uh, which has meant that uh, uh, the first two years of the bank, it's not quite two years yet, but we've had to actually revise upwards our plans three times, which has been, which has been very pleasant. Part of that has been the, you know, the digital acceleration that has happened through COVID, which, which is really a, a thing that really helped us. The other part was, I think, a validation of some of the products. We did do a lot of thinking around what does a customer want and how do we how do we use technology to solve it. And I think we've the times are such that our products have far more relevance today. Right. Well, before we, we touch a little bit on the future of borrowing and lending per se, what is your feeling on the one hand and sort of analysis on the other about this whole better part of 20-year arc? Was it just kind of a way of bootstrapping new banks. I mean, look, <laughs> a very long and complicated way of bootstrapping a, a, a new bank. Um, or, I mean, okay, you're, 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 this is going to be a very silly question. You're going to answer all of the above, but never mind, it's my fault. Or was it about starting afresh with a clean sheet of paper, unlike a Citigroup or HSBC that haven't got a clean sheet of paper? 
Uh, was it about understanding technology or being closer to the customers yeah. or the digital world? I mean, I, I'm sure all these things swirl around, but yeah. maybe if I reframe that as what's uppermost in your mind when you look back on 20 years, well, let's say 20 years ago, you, you and I never heard of peer-to-peer -peer, and actually 20 years ago, Zopa hadn't heard of peer-to-peer because -peer there was no Zopa. So I mean, I would come back to that. So I would think it was with great sadness that we, we exited the, re the retail peer-to-peer -peer business. We exited it actually back end of last year. And I think that came about not because of the fact that we felt that the peer-to-peer -peer business as it existed didn't have value, but the fact that because it was easy to start, you know, as I said, you know, it didn't require that much capital. Because potentially regulation was 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 lighter, there was an explosion of peer-to-peer -peer models, and some of them didn't have the same discipline in terms of lending. Some of them were outright fraud, <laughs> where they were taking investors' money and just putting them in their pocket. Some of them were not diversifying people's loans that month. That means if there were one or two failures, people had a huge loss. And as a result, there were a few platform failures which really hurt customer trust trust in the industry. Right? It also meant that regulators had to really tighten almost the onboarding. And if for somebody wanted to put in money into this, really tighten the process. And that combination meant that the business became unviable for us to continue in. So, you know, to answer, so that was a moment of sadness for us. But I didn't, I still continue to believe that there was a place for peer-to-peer. -peer. There is a place to, for peer-to-peer -to, -peer to do, but it was never going to displace or wipe out all the banks. So what is it? What do I, what do I learn? So I think, A, yes, you know, done right, some sort of a, a platform model is a good way to bootstrap a lending business. But lending is hard. Lending is complex. There continues to be the opportunity of being, if you're good with risk and if you're good with uh, technology, then you can continue to actually create these new models. But ultimately, for you to succeed, I do feel that one of the learnings from these 20 years is that you need more skin in the game. You need more skin in the game than a peer-to-peer -peer business because I think it is important to, that's the only way you'll make a reasonable return. If it's others who are always, always taking the risk and all you're doing is managing, then in a efficient market, you're not going to make enough return to create an attractive and sustainable business. Because the cost of the whole intermediation yeah. process, even if you take no risk as, as you guys, yeah. well, you took reputational risk, but no, no capital risk, as it were, the cost of the process and the cost of the credit analysis and the cost of chasing up the bad debts and the cost of the cost of the cost of the cost of, yeah. as bankers know, is quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's enough to make for, I mean, you can make enough margin to make a profit, but it's never going to be incredibly exciting. And you're left to the whims, in some ways, of the people who are, who are lending on your platform, right? And when there is a crisis, and I think COVID was an was a interesting point, where when there is a crisis like that, then there is a flight to safety. And if you don't have access to your own capital, then suddenly your lending volumes disappear within a... And that's why you see, so the, for example, I believe, and I, you know, I don't have inside information here, but the rate seller sale to Metro happened because, there was a, because they felt they could not have the money to lend. Similarly, Lending Works, another uh, business which actually sold uh, at a similar time. And effectively, that crisis of COVID meant that most pure peer-to-peer -peer players, with the exception of Funding Circle, either went away from the business model or ended up actually selling to banks. Yes, it's an interesting question about Funding Circle. I mean, one of the, the massive changes of Funding Circle, which has maybe made it easier for it to carry on, not that its share price has been stellar performance, has been the whole government or whatever these covety loany mumbly mumbly things is called, you know, that there yeah. is kind of like free business coming through the front door. But okay, then just to, to wrap up this, because it's been a very interesting arc and it's been a, a great pleasure for me to hear you as somebody who's bridged the worlds from P2P didn't exist 
to peace be existed and you and I didn't know what it was to we heard of it and thought, oh, that's a bit odd and maybe this and maybe that. And then then you join, as you say, by COO and then you go through the phase change and then the COVID comes and uh, and all these kind of things come. And um, as we've touched on once or twice in the podcast this year, who knows, in bloody five years time, I could be back and, and it could all be sort of, you know, CBDCs and money's disappeared and changed. And we're going, oh, God, all sorts of things have happened this century, haven't they, kind of thing. And, and there could have been nuclear war in the meantime and all, all sorts of stuff. But Hopefully not. Hopefully not. We don't have a contingency plan for nuclear war, actually. I thought, well, these days, risks management, you know, you need all these things. But let's just sort of wrap up this sort of topicy bit with inverting the whole thing. So we've been talking about a journey and how things have changed, and they certainly have changed. But isn't there not a perspective? Let's not say 20 years or even or in 2005, because it was a startup then, no one knew what it was. But let's say a decade ago to 2012. Is there a way in which Zopra in 2022... It's kind of similar to Zopra in 2012. It's a digital business. Yeah. It's, it's serving borrowers uh, and lenders. Yeah. The fact that, shall we say, the internal combustion engine has changed from a sort of a rotary wankle engine into a six-cylinder engine yeah. is kind of interesting to nerds, finance nerds like you and I. Yeah. But from the outside, 10 years ago, I'd have gone to Zopra and went, I need money, please, thank you very much, to buy a car or to buy a, a, a multi-hull yeah. uh, catamaran yeah. uh, <laughs> these days. Or I go and say... Hey, I've got loads of money. I want to invest it in something different. I mean, that bit hasn't really changed, has it? So, yeah, I would think the philosophy has been remained very, very consistent, right? We felt borrowers could get better deals and we can, we can offer them more transparent uh, than, and done digitally very quickly. And we continue to f- focus on that. Installment loans still is our biggest business. Credit cards might overtake that by a number of customers in the next two, three months. But it's all about, you have a borrowing need. How do I meet that responsibly? In fact, one of our most recent launch, uh, which we have just done, this week is a debt consolidation calculator that allows you very seamlessly in our app to compare the costs of your existing debt, which we, we, which we can make that easy to actually present and, uh, for you, and offer, uh, if possible, the cheaper options at Zopa. And in testing, we've seen that the average customer tends to save about £300 in interest if they choose that debt. So that's the idea is, you know, how do I provide you more responsible and a more affordable way to borrow? And on the other side, there's billions of Pounds of uh, of money sitting in what we call zombie current accounts, earning you nothing. And how can you wear a, a give you a more compelling return? Earlier it was peer to peer investments. Today our savings, uh, be that you know f- fixed term savings, if you want to put the money for some time, or easy access savings, are some of the most competitive rates out there. Uh, so if you want to earn better return on your savings, then Zopa is still the place to come to. So that basic offering hasn't changed. Our commitment to customer centricity hasn't changed. And I think in today's world, where I think we are looking into the, we are living through a cost of living crisis, responsible, affordable credit, and better returns on savings is something the customers are really after. And we will continue to meet that need. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is earlier, we were directly connecting these two. Now we have something else in the middle. Yes, it reminds me of the fact that the answer to most things, most compare and contrast is on the one hand, on the other hand. So there's this thing about are a circle and a square the same or different? Most people say, they're, oh, they're different because the, the, the square's got pointy bits and the circle doesn't. However, if you draw a circle on one sheet of paper and a square on another, there's still a continuous line that divides the page into an inside and outside. So there's always the same and, and yeah, different. Yeah. And so I think the one thing that I've got out of this, a, a, a good feel, uh, thank you, JW, is that uh, the idea that, oh, Zopa used to be peer-to-peer and now it's a bank is completely changed. Yeah. 
is, is only one aspect yeah. of how the engine has changed inside, whereas all the other stuff, how to use technology, how to use digital, yeah. how to be nice to your customers, how to be nice to your lenders, and all that kind of stuff, uh, is continuing relatively seamlessly. And the fact that you've got a little, I don't know, treasury department in the middle that's part of the interbank market, that's, you know, that, that's for sort of techies, uh, business, FS techies like you and I. Yeah, so if you are looking for something that's a good and a better way of borrowing, or better returns on money that's sitting around, then Zopa is still the place to come. The model is different. Great. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, JDev, given that the topic today has been the whole arc of fintech and borrowing and lending and that uh, Zopra was the only one there in, in, in 2005 and that the transition you've seen from both sides and therefore you're talking about it from the inside. We've perhaps touched on Zopra once or twice uh, already in the show so there may not be so much to say in terms of wrap up because I think people hopefully understand a lot more about what you're up to, what the motivations are and what your new products are that they should be checking out. So maybe you'd just like to wrap up a little bit with how you see assuming no nuclear war or central bank digital currencies eliminating cash and you know catastrophic things like that. How you see the next five years? Are you just going to be trying to get bigger and better in the UK? Are you going to be expanding around Europe? Are you going to take over the, the world? What's your current sort of vision board about the next few years? Yeah, I mean, we continue to see a huge amount of opportunity uh, in, the, in the UK. We started our uh, journey with focusing on, as I said, borrowing and savings. We feel that's even more important given the current economic environment, high inflation rates, incredibly non-compelling savings rates that are given by, given by banks. So we want to, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of opportunity. And so I see it's more likely that we will be diversifying our products even further, continuing to be focusing on the borrowing and savings needs of our customers. Things that excite us are electric vehicles, for example. Uh, we want to figure out how we can help people lease that more easily. So uh, I feel in the in, in the coming years, uh, customers will still need to borrow uh, uh, and we can be a responsible alternative for that, be that to you know, get them a new car, lease the new car, find a way to lower their cost of debt. And that will be continuing to our focus. Uh, I don't expect that we will be doing international expansion because there's so much to be done here. Uh, and we've, we see so much growth in front of us that I think that's, that's where our focus will be. Excellent. Well, that's a very nice follow-on from the previous episode, FinTech in Scandinavia, where we spoke about the two-century background to technology in Scandinavia as a whole, from coming from a very sort of poor place that decided it needed sort of industrialization and technology to uh, stop its people being poor and it's very successful, and that's led into technology. And and their, their perception that being small markets, it's a real advantage because they can test it and then they have to expand because there's nowhere to go. And the point that the opposite extreme in an American empire, America's been selling everybody Coca-Cola since World War II. And that the UK is somewhere in the middle and it's actually such a large market that it takes you quite a long time to sort of, shall we say, reach the limits of it. So there isn't such pressure on expansion. And that's been a really interesting coverage of the arc of 17 years of lending and borrowing in fintech. Jadev, so I thank you very much for that and I wish you continuing success in the future. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day
Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so grey Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.